watching this. Uh, glad that you're tuning in with us and kind of keeping in touch with Grace Church uh, Norton Campus through this way. My name's Aiden, one of the pastors. If I haven't I had the chance to meet you before, uh, so glad that you're connected this way. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if, if there's something that we say, any questions that you have, any way we can pray for you, we'd love for you to email us, uh, call our church office. All that is on the website. We would love to connect with you in that way. As you get a little bit older, I'm turning 31 this year. Some of you laugh at that. That's fine. I don't care. And some of you are like, wow, that 31 feels old. Depends on how old you are. Sometimes you think about unique experiences that shape us. And maybe at the time it didn't seem too significant. But looking back, you're like, wow, that's... That's interesting. I I grew up <clears throat> uh, with one of my one of my childhood friends growing up. lived on a, a farm. I'm from Doylestown, Ohio, pretty rural. And one of my one of my best friends growing up, he lived on a farm. And so we spent a lot of time over there. Uh, different times, we do different jobs with them, kind of as work throughout the summer, sometimes even. But when your friend lives on a farm and you stay the night there, you're working regardless, right? You kind of end up working, helping with something, right? And what was interesting was you'd be a kid and I'd come and you'd watch and the work of a farmer, excuse me, the work of a farmer is never done, right? Like you'd go over and there was tilling and raking and planting and baling and storing and fixing. Like there's always something to do, right? But there also is no way to speed it up. Like farming is like this year rotation process and you can't go any faster when you live in Ohio, right? And what's interesting is the kids, we'd play outside, play on the farm, have a bunch of fun, but then we would come inside, and my, my kind of age, I kind of was born in 91, yeah, laugh at me, but you, we kind of saw technology grow at a rapid rate in a lot of different ways, right? Our video game systems kind of grew, went from flip phones to smartphones, like, map, like maps to MapQuest to Google Maps, like all this stuff kind of happened as I was growing up, and so it was interesting is to be over there, you'd be inside, and you'd play video games, and we'd be instant messaging our friends on the computer, and then you'd go outside, and you would help with this process that, that never changed. Obviously, there's, there's advancements in farming, but a lot of things kind of were the same, and you couldn't speed them up, you couldn't do them faster, you just had to do them. And we'd go inside, and you would play the game, and it'd be the new game, it'd be the new thing, outside, back to the, and it was this interesting paradigm, right? We live in a world, we talk about this all the time, that is so fast, that is so busy, and we're such a fast pace, and there's so much going on. What's interesting is the speed and the technology to which things kind of shape us. They don't just change how we do things, but they inherently change us, right? Our relationships, our time, our investments, how we think about things, how we process things, how we feel about things how we deal with things. It doesn't just change how we do it, but it changes fundamentally how we think about it, who we are, right? And so as a pastor, as a, as a dad, as a follower of Jesus, as a human, I'm really interested about how all these things shape us. Because some things happen real fast, they change, and some things are the same. And it's interesting to kind of live between those things, right? I think the, the technology and the speed of things kind of shape us in two fundamental ways. The first is that we have so many things we can focus our time on, so many things we can chase after and kind of seek after, so many, that it almost becomes overwhelming sometimes, the options we have. And on the other side of the spectrum, the second thing I think it changes us is that we just can't slow down. Even if we think we're calm, kind of slow people, the pace to which technology, which life calls us to, it's almost impossible to try and slow down while the water is just rushing around us, right? But every once in a while, you know, the craziness of life, it hits the fan, right? 
and we find ourselves upside down, full of angst, anxiety, suffering, questioning, maybe desperate, and we come face to face with the reality that we have been running hard and run, running fast after things that we didn't even know we were doing, that we run hard and fast after things that eat up our time and things that we know, things that we know aren't truly gonna satisfy us, aren't gonna give us the peace that we're longing for. And what we long for is the peaceful presence of an all-knowing God and creator who leads us into assurance and into rest and into peace. And you may not say it that way this morning, but we all have that longing, right, for peace, for things to be made calm, for things to be okay. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, not the beginning, but it was November of 2020. So I don't know, six months into it. And um, I remember it was, we were, we had the the main lockdown and all that stuff. And then summer, life kind of got back to normal. And as we got close to winter, cases were rising and stuff was happening. And we were trying to figure out what this meant again, right? And so I remember talking to a friend who's a pastor on the phone who was just trying to figure out what decisions he should make at his church. We were trying to figure out what decisions we should make at the church. Uh, just Facebook's going crazy. There's all kinds, everybody, businesses, individuals, trying to figure this thing out and everybody's kind of worked up about it, right? I remember getting off the phone with my friend and getting out of my car and seeing an, an older gentleman that I know and just for a quick second asked him about everything and I said, what do you think about all this? And he said, just really simply, he said, I don't think people's faith is what they said it was. And then he looked at me and he didn't say it in an arrogant way. He didn't say it cocky. He just kind of said it matter-of-factly. He said, my faith is what I said it was. Because for the last two years, this, this guy has been doing what he's always been doing, just trying to make Jesus make sense, love people. And I thought for a second, like, man, that, that peaceful presence, that, that, that's, that's what we all long for. And today, what we're going to do, we're continuing our conversation through the Psalms. And what we want to look at for a little bit today is just Psalm 27, just one Psalm. And David, the guy who wrote this, he's living in the reality that people are against him. His heart is heavy. He's anxious. But at the same time, he displays this inner peace of a man who has cultivated intimacy with the Lord. It's kind of this beautiful dichotomy as we read this that he has peace in suffering, that he has confidence in a, in a kind of chaotic reality that he's in, that he has assurance while he's literally under attack by people. And what we want to look at in this in this psalm today are just a couple key words that I think are kind of the secret to his relationship with the Lord, to the inner peace that he has as he walks with Jesus. And I think it'll point us towards what it looks like for us to pursue that relationship with God. So there's no way around it. We're just going to read straight through this. It's 14 verses. I would encourage you to open the, the Bible if you got one with us. We'll throw it here on the screen. It starts here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I love that everything he talks about. He's going to talk about his response, things going on around him, but it starts with who God is is, that he's his light, his salvation, his stronghold, that this whole psalm is up against the greatness and the assurance of who God is. He says, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. I love this. Verse four, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. 
From the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of a sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At a sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Even while this dude's facing off enemies, he's playing the acoustic guitar, right? He says, hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says, seek his face. It's almost the the solution to the noise around him is to seek the face of the Lord. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Don't reject me. Don't forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother may forsake me, Lord, you will receive me. He says, teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for the false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. You can feel the weight of the world on him, that his enemies, what they're saying, what they're doing, they're coming against him, and he's like, Lord, please help me in this. You kind of feel the tension, you can feel who he's driving into, but look at this. It says, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. Makes you wonder, how does he come to this place? How did this man that I ran into last November, how did he come to this place where we live in the tension of craziness around us, craziness inside us, yet have this assurance? And I think it begins with this. You can write down this word that we see him say multiple times in this, in this passage is seek. That we'll seek the Lord actively, pursue being with Jesus. Look at verse four. I would encourage you to memorize verse four. It says, one thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek. It says that I may dwell, that I gotta stay in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To not just look, to not glance, but to gaze upon the beauty of who Jesus is, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek him, there's our word, in his temple. Now, I wanna say this just kind of for the framework today. Sometimes, Sometimes we confuse in the gospel what Jesus has done for us and what he calls us to do. And we confuse those things because as humans, our inherent default is that we have to do something to gain status, to gain favor with somebody, right? So we think the same thing with God, right? We have this kind of framework, religious framework, not just in church, but all throughout our society, regardless of what arena we're talking in, that we have to perform a certain way to get something. So we transfer that into our relationship with God, right? And the reality of the gospel is that if we look at the story of God, it's all a big arrow pointing towards God coming towards us. In creation, God makes his way to us by creating us. At Christmas, we just celebrate this, we see that God makes his way to come and dwell with us. At the cross, we see God coming to take our sin, right? We see God giving us his spirit to live inside of us, to lead us, to guide us into all truth. And our promise is that he will come again. The gospel is Jesus moving towards us. That the gospel, grace runs downhill towards us. Everything we believe, everything we do, sing about, read, is about the complete finished work of Jesus on our behalf. We rest in that. We praise him because of that. That is the gospel. It's what Jesus has done in our place. But it calls us to respond. Like, that's not just like a cool thanks, check, see you in heaven, but it's like, what, what does that mean for me? How do I respond to that? How do I live into that, understand that, grasp that? That's what we want. How do we seek the Lord in that? He invites us into something, but too often we subconsciously either believe or actually live in a way that's like, 
yep, it's done. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to, we don't have to do anything to earn God's favor. But what we want to look at today is there's so much beauty in seeking him. The psalmist says this all throughout the Psalms. Look at this. Uh, Psalm 142.2, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. Look at 34, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. That we are called to seek after God, to pursue God, to pursue the God who has first and foremost pursued and is pursuing us. The call is to turn and to look up towards the Lord, right? But the truth is that we are all, all of us are seeking after something already. It's not like you go from not seeking to seeking. We're all seeking something. It's the way our lives, whether it's status, happiness, some certain form of an ideal life, respect from somebody. Maybe we're seeking after some relationship, right? You fill in your blank. But we are all in pursuit of something. I love the way Tim Keller says this. He's, if you're not sure, what is it that my life is chasing after? What is it that I'm seeking with my life? It says, our fears can serve an important purpose. They show us where we really have located our heart's treasure. It's interesting. What are the... The fear in our heart points towards what it is that we are seeking. But look at what he says in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That we do, Our fear doesn't need to direct these things. When we seek the Lord, our fear is dealt with when we find our home in Jesus. But it's a good question to ask. What does it mean to seek God? That sounds cool. Okay, but it sounds a little ethereal, a little churchy. What does it mean to seek God? I'd maybe say it this way, real simple. To seek God is to live in such a way that we pursue knowing Jesus and his way of living in the world. That the gospel is God making his way to us, him seeking us out. And so it's just a way, how do we pursue, respond to that and say, Jesus, if this is you, that you have come towards it, how do you, what do you call me to do? It's a natural response, right? And we look at David in the psalm in the midst of anxiety and threat and stress. He draws into his relationship with God. Not information about God, not just instructions on how to evade the situation and feel a certain way, or the, but he draws himself into who God is, knowing that the protection for his soul is in God. What does this look like practically? Like, what does that look like, nitty-gritty nuts and bolts? There's no silver bullet. There's no, here's the, here's what you got to do. And then you can see, there's no secret sauce. There's no magic incantation. But the way in which we seek after the one who sought us, the way in which we per actively pursue Jesus with our life is the intentional and habitual way in which we live out our day to day. It is that simple. Some people may call them spiritual disciplines. It's not the best sounding thing. Some people call them life practices or just the daily rhythms and habits of our life. Call it what you want. But think about this. 
There's no secret. You gotta go to this magic place. You gotta say this magic thing, or you gotta get this certain magic frame of mind. Like we wanna find quick fixes all over. Like give me a pill that I'm never gonna get sick again. Give me a killer app that's gonna make me real productive. Give me the relational advice that I can get any girl, any guy I want. Like give me those things. But the call to seek Jesus, the one who sought us, it's found in the everyday. Think about this, and seeing that God himself came and lived with us on this earth as a human, God, the creator of all things, came as a human, was a carpenter, normal job, had a mom, had a dad, brothers, sisters, co-workers, whatever, normal life. It would make sense that the way in which we seek after him is found in the normalcy of our everyday existence. Verse 11 says, teach me your way, Lord. Teach me your way. You live in this world. Teach me that way. Lead me in your straight path. I'm going to give you a picture of how this may work. My, my wife's birthday is December 22nd. So as a worship pastor at a church, like the week of Christmas is, it's a busy week. Like there's a lot going on, right? It always in the middle of that week is the most important day of the year, right? My wife's birthday. And so for my wife's birthday this year, uh, I got her, amongst some other things, uh, some tulip bulbs. I don't know. She wanted them. They're tulip bulbs. Apparently they're beautiful and Joanna Gaines got them at her house, right? So we got these tulip bulbs, and I got them in the mail, opened them, yay. Now, the thing about tulip bulbs is these bulbs, you have to plant in the fall. And we're no dummies here, it is not fall time. And you can't do it in spring, gotta be in the fall. Not gonna hold on to these things for a year. So my mom was like, hey, ground's not frozen, just go try and plant them. So we had our first services of Christmas uh, Eve services on the 23rd. And so that morning, it's cold, and I'm like trying not to get sick, right? But I'm like, we're gonna do this. And so I button up my three-year-old son, zip. He looks like the kid from Christmas Story. I'm like, let's go, man. We're gonna go plant these bulbs. And so we go out there to the street. We live on a busy street. I'm wearing a parka, and I'm in shorts, which is a common combination, and I'm not sure why. But we go out there, and it's and it, when it's cold and it's winter, you're not trying to take your time. You're like, let's just do this. I'm like, give this kid a plastic shovel, start digging. And so we're just digging this little trench to put these bulbs in. And as we're prepping it, you got to find the right spot with the right amount of sunlight, right? You got to pull up weeds. You got to pull out some old ivy, some stumps. You got to move this stuff, dig the hole, not too wide, not too deep, not too shallow. Put the bulbs in there, cover them up. You got to water them all. And then for us. As some of you may know, I've been in a war with squirrels ever since we moved into our house. And I read something that these squirrels love to eat these bulbs, so I got some squirrel spray. And so I, it's like pepper spray for animals, I don't know. But I'm like spraying it all around the place and the wind catches it and it's hitting me and my kid in the eyes. I'm like, get down! Pepper spraying ourselves, right? Now listen. None of these things squirrel spray, watering, pulling weeds, none of those things in and of themselves are going to make those tulips grow. Those tulips will grow depending upon the sun and the rain of which I have no control. But what I'm doing is I am cultivating the ground. I am cultivating the environment that these tulips will grow and produce life in our garden read a book this week by a guy named Gordon McDonald. He's an older dude. He wrote it in the 80s. It's, a, it's an awesome book. But what he talks about is that these spiritual habits, life practices, whatever they are, these ways that we seek God, which we're going to look at here, they're habits of cultivating our inner garden. They're cultivating our inner garden. Now, I want, I want to look at some of these, some of these, these habits. 
And some of us, we, we practice these things. As we look at these, some of these things we'll practice, we do these things in our life, and I wanna show us these, but what I want you to make a note of is these things are not things that I'm saying, do these. Throw these things into your life, then all of a sudden you're gonna have this relationship of like what David had. In the midst of the cast, you're gonna have this peaceful presence like David, like this old man I talked to. But we are cultivating the ground, cultivating the ground, so that Jesus may bear fruit in our lives. Let's look at some of these. First one is, is just the idea of worship. And, and maybe that's just, that's just the congregational gathering together, maybe it's online. The weekly rhythm of coming together, of hearing the word, of being with others, of worshiping together, that habit. It's so easy in our culture to, to get in the habit of once a month, six weeks, you know, my life didn't change the last time I went, so I'll go in a month, like I get it. And I'm not the pastor saying, you gotta be here every week. But the rhythm of coming together, being with others, seeing others, others seeing you, if you're able, worshiping together. And maybe that's online, there's different ways you can do this, but the habit of worshiping, of setting aside a day, a time to come, and Lord, this is your time for me to be filled with you, to be reminded of the gospel, that habit of worship. For some of us, you didn't see this one coming, prayer. And some of us, it, we, we pray when times get tough. We pray when we need something. We pray real fast in the car for a good day. But the idea of a dedicated time and place where we go to meet with the Lord. David in the Psalm says, in the, your holy tent, that he went and meet with the Lord. Where, where is your holy tent? Where is the place where you meet with the Lord? Is it a chair? Is it your porch? Is it a coffee shop? Is it in the morning? Is it night? What is a time and place where you go and you meet with the Lord? For myself, you'd probably tell I'm a little squirrely. And so for a, a long time, this is up till recently, I would go sit in the morning often and, and it'd be helpful. But I'm like not a morning person. I'd wake up and sometimes you're like, Lord, I pray that you would help me to just... And I'm like dozing off, right? What I learned is I stand up and I walk in a circle and it's so much more helpful for me because I gotta move, right? What is your time and place where you come and meet with the Lord? Lay your heart the Lord's feet, but also listen, listen to the Lord. You didn't see this one coming either, but scripture, for many of us, some of us might have habits of reading scripture, and, and sometimes it's not, just, it's not just reading about Jesus, but being with Jesus as we read the scriptures. Listening to what the Lord's teaching us through the scriptures, not just looking at a verse of the day, being inspired by it and going about the day, but being filled. God has revealed himself in the word. For some of us, it's fellowship, right? We are in a day and age where it's so easy to be disconnected from people and the realities of life, but to fellowship, to be with, to sharpen one another. When my wife and I first got married, you know, you're trying to figure out stuff. You're not sure if what you're fighting about, if you're the only people who have ever fought about that thing, if the problems you're having are the only people who've had this problem. And we were in a group with some other young married couples and it was life-giving because you're like, oh, you guys have that same problem. Oh, Oh, you got, you can rejoice with others. They rejoice with you. Celebrate one another. Like, not just friends necessarily, but fellowship. Walking with other people as we follow Jesus together. The habit of confession. We don't talk about this enough in our culture because we don't want to admit our shortcomings, admit our problems. But the habit of, when we are spending time with the Lord in prayer, of confessing our sin to acknowledging where we fell short. Sometimes it's super obvious. You sit down and confess and you're like, yep, I was a jerk. And sometimes it may not be as obvious to us. We're like, yeah, it wasn't a big deal. It was an easy day. But when you stop and think, Lord, I was, I was impatient. Lord, I didn't feel like I needed you at all today. Lord, 
Did I even see other people today? And we start to become aware of our shortcomings. And it reminds us of our need and reliance for the Lord. It's this this tilling of the ground, right? It's this prepping of the soil of our hearts. It's this cultivating our inner garden. For some of us, the world is so busy, so noisy. We're texting, we're on Facebook, we're on calls, we're listening to podcasts. We're always getting input from other people. Silence and solitude of of withdrawing, of being still before the Lord. Just sitting in prayer, being still before the Lord, not saying anything, not listening to something but just slowing our hearts down before the Lord. What does that do in the midst of our culture? Service, giving ourselves away. Giving ourselves away to somebody else. So much of our lives is about ourselves. Not for all of us, but for many of us. So much about what can I do? What can I get? How can I be more productive? How can I get this done? But service, it could be something super small. It could be something profound, but giving ourselves away for the sake of somebody else. And this idea of fasting, this is kind of weird for our culture. But the idea of us withholding something from ourselves so that our desires may be redirected towards the Lord. And oftentimes it's food, right? That we, we kind of limit ourselves, we stop ourselves from something intentionally so that that energy, that even those hunger pains would be redirected towards the Lord. Now listen, there's a whole bunch more I could throw up here. And this is not some list of things to do to get God to like you. Here you go. Do these things. Not at all. But these things are us cultivating the garden. And for some of us, we have different seasons of life. You may be a mom who's trying to wrangle these kids all day, and you're like, dude, my life is service. Maybe maybe for you, it's it's a season of intentional fellowship, intentional community, intentional life-giving in those things. For some of you, you spend your entire life, maybe you run a small business, whatever, that you are constantly talking to people, constantly going, your phone's always buzzing, always ringing. Maybe it's like, I need silence and solitude. I need to slow down before the Lord or else I will fill up every minute of my life. And you may look at these, but I gotta start doing all these. It's not about doing these things. It's about cultivating your garden because the truth is that we are all cultivating something in our lives. None of these things have the power to give us what David had to bear fruit in our lives, but we cultivate the garden so that Jesus can grow fruit in and through us. You are already filling your life with something. You are already cultivating something. Are you cultivating what you want to be cultivating? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you cultivating what Jesus has called us to cultivate? Are you bearing the fruit that he's called us to bear? cultivating the, the fruit of love and of joy and of peace and of patience and of kindness, goodness. Is this what's coming from us? Or is what's coming from us exhaustion and loneliness and anxiety and stress and comparison and anger and frustration? What is bearing your life? I'm not asking you to add things to your life. But we look at the intimate relationship and the chaos that David had with the Lord. The inner garden that he cultivated. And it bore the fruit of peace and of reliance and of joy in the midst of suffering. Jesus wants us to experience life, to experience life abundantly. But this is is where we're at today. We rob ourselves of our relationship with him when we neglect to cultivate our inner garden in this way. Where it's not like, well, God doesn't like you. You're not earning God's favor. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's not that we're robbing ourselves of this intimacy with God. 
of being present with the Prince of Peace. In his book, Ordering Your Inner Life, uh, Gordon MacDonald gives a, a small list of what we rob ourselves of. I'd love to, to show us and to throw them up here because I think they're, they're powerful. We rob ourselves when we neglect to cultivate our inner garden. First thing he says is this, we will never learn to enjoy the eternal and infinite perspective on reality. When we spend all of our time in the news and in our social media feeds and in gossip and in stress and listening to things, when we spend all of our time looking down, we feel like the world's going to end tomorrow. The world should have ended 15 times in the last two years, right? And we, we constantly, whether it's the noise out there, the noise in here, we're constantly looking down, constantly. But when we sit at the feet of the one who created all things, who is present in all things, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the end of all things, when we sit at his feet, it gives us perspective on life. That this life is but a breath. This life is but a vapor. This life is going to come like the grass. It's going to wilt. It's going to be done. And when we let perspective change, we sit at the feet of Jesus, it changes our perspective. The Psalms constantly say to lift our eyes. To lift our eyes. Not from the things and all the busy day to day and we're going to die. Da, da, da. Lift our eyes to Jesus that we might have this eternal and infinite perspective. We rob ourselves of that. I'm a young pastor and so a lot of times there's situations that I'm not familiar with. Stuff that's that's tough or that's scary, that's hard on the answer to. And if I just sit and think about it, I'm like, what should I do? How should I do this? I can be stressed out about it. But I have the benefit of getting to be a part of a team of, of guys and girls who've been doing this way longer than me. And so it changes my perspective when I sit with them and I, how would you handle this? Can you tell me some stories of your victories and failures in ministry? Can you help me with this? It changes my perspective. And if I don't go to them, I'm robbing myself of the opportunity to grow and to cultivate my, my life in these ways. Second thing Gordon MacDonald says, if we don't cultivate our garden, these, these practices are not found in our lives, we will rob ourselves of a vital, life-giving friendship with Jesus. Oftentimes we can think of God flippantly like the big guy upstairs or like a boss or like somebody who's mad at us or some person who's trying to keep us in line with certain things, or we just think of him as a doctrine in a book or a name in a song. But I love, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. I just took my uh, eight-month-old, I think he's eight months, took him to the doctor. It's great taking a doctor. They give him some medication. They check him out, make sure he's all good. There's this inter- uh, transaction. Love it. It's great. Gets him where I need to be. Gets him where he needs to be. But that's a different relationship than I have with my friends. I have two good friends. One of them I share an office with. One of them lives in Colorado. And I share FaceTime with him. But, but I, would, I, even for, I would say a lot of who I am today, for better or for worse, is shaped by my relationships in my life, by those friends that I've had for decades now. They have shaped who I am day to day. By, by the conversations we have, by the interactions we have, by the wisdom, by the experiences we have together. Like that shapes who I am in a very different way than, than the doctor. The doctor, I come, get what I need, leave. That shapes us. And when we don't cultivate our garden, we rob ourselves of this life-giving friendship with Jesus. That we get to co-labor with Jesus. That he's present with us in all things. That we can share our burdens with Jesus. We celebrate with Jesus. We rob ourselves of that. McDonald says this, when we don't cultivate our inner garden, 
we rob ourselves. We lose the awareness of our size in comparison to our Creator. And therefore, our value before Him as sons and daughters. So we can lose our accountability to, to who God is. Almost the fear of the Lord. And we don't cultivate this garden. That God becomes small in our hearts and minds. And therefore, sin becomes not as big of a deal or becomes the actual solution to a problem. And what can happen is we can think sin looks better than, than being present with Jesus and abiding in Jesus. And we get our sin and when we engage with it, we know that it lets us down and it leaves us empty. And then, because we had a small view of God, a small view of, a big view of sin and a small view of God, then we feel like we can't carry our things back to God because we carry guilt and shame. But when we see God for who he is, the greatness of who he is, the greatness of his grace and forgiveness, then we see ourselves properly as his sons and as his daughters. I remember reading a pastor who failed once and he said, I didn't stop believing that Jesus loved me. I stopped fearing God. When we don't cultivate our inner garden, we lose sight of who God is. And therefore, we lose sight of who he has made us to be. There's a difference between knowing that we're sons and daughters and actually living into it. The fourth thing that McDonald says is that if we don't cultivate our inner garden, we will have little resolve for crisis moments. When you fail, when you're humiliated, when you're let down, when you experience loss, we will turn the things that we find, we will turn to the things that we find comfort and solace in. Whenever we experience humiliation, loss, let down, whatever, we're going we're to turn to the things that give us comfort. Maybe it's a specific relationship, maybe unhealthy relationship, maybe it's a substance, maybe it's ourselves. You know, forget them, I'll just do it myself. And we turn to these things and they're not lasting. But we see like David in the psalm when he experiences crisis, when he experiences people coming after him, fear in his own heart, he turns to the Lord and we hear the words of peace come from David. At the center of all of this, we begin to see Jesus and his majesty. This is what McDonald says. He says there he is more than what is contained in some doctoral statement, more than the emotional words of a song. But at the center, he commands attention as the risen Lord of life. And we are compelled to follow after him and draw from the strength of his character and of his compassion. That we're called to seek after the Lord with our lives, to cult, seek after him by cultivating our garden, by looking at the habits of our life and asking if they are producing in us what we want produced in us. Second word we see David saying in the psalm, and then we'll close out here. He says, to wait. To wait. It's this confident reliance on the wilderness. Look at the end of the psalm. I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And the land of the living is kind of the, the arena of life where we find ourselves. It's the day-to-day. -day. It's here and now. It's not heaven, but it's here and now. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. Tom Petty said, waiting is the hardest part. We, in our culture, we are so ingrained with speed and efficiency. Food's getting faster. Phones are getting faster. Processes are making things happen faster. Cars are getting faster. We're obsessed with it. And we equate waiting with inaction. 
If we're waiting for something, it's because someone else is sitting around and not doing their job. If you don't believe me, just go wait in line at a fast food restaurant right now. You'll get real ticked real quick and picture some made up person and be mad at him. But David in this psalm, he's confident that God is working. He expects waiting. He calls us to wait. This confidence, I was thinking, is this, this living in the tension between the history of what God has done in our lives and trusting the promises of what he's going to do. That's confidence. Think about any relationship. Like, I'm confident that my wife is not going to cheat on me. I'm confident of that because of the history that we have together, because of promises we made, but because of her character, because of who she is. That confidence is knowing what God has done knowing the promises he has, and trusting his character. But the only way that we trust his character, that we trust his track record, is that we've walked with him. We've had friendship with him. We've seen him. We've, we've leaned into him. When we come to crises, when we come to moments, and we have no track record because we haven't cultivated that garden, it's hard to be confident in him. We haven't walked with him. We don't know him as much as we might know about him. Waiting is integral to the story of God. You read the story of the Bible, it is all about waiting. But our faith is often tested and refined in the waiting. I love the way a guy, this is a little bit of a longer quote, but stick with me. This guy named Paul Tripp, he really summed this up really well. He says, Abraham waited many years for his promised son. Israel, the nation, waited 420 years for deliverance from Egypt and then another 40 years before they could enter the land that God had promised them. God's people waited generation after generation for the Messiah, and the church now waits for his return. The whole world groans as it waits for the final renewal of all things that God has promised. Like the story of God is the story of waiting, but he says this, to be called to wait is to be called to the activity of remembering, remembering who I am and who God is. To be called to wait is to be called to the activity of worship, Worshiping God for his presence, wisdom, power, love, and grace. To be called to wait is to be called to the activity of serving. Looking for ways to lovingly assist and encourage others who are also called to wait. To be called to wait is to be called to the activity of praying. Confessing the struggles in my heart and seeking the grace of the God who has called me to wait. We must rethink waiting. and Remind ourselves that waiting is itself a call to action. See, you see how seeking God, cultivating that garden, practicing these habits in our life, and waiting go hand in hand. These are not fast, quick tips and tricks to get the life we want. These are the abiding and the day-to-day practices of following Jesus and waiting on him. Faith is tested in the waiting and faith is active in the waiting. James uh, says this in chapter 5. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Like my friend whose dad was a farmer, you had to wait patiently. This was not a quick process. This was a a year-long rotation of crops. But that dude was working. He was not sitting around. He was not just tapping his fingers waiting for sitting around. He was active in the waiting. I love this. I read this this week. A Chinese bamboo tree 
takes five years to grow. It has to be watered and fertilized in the ground where it's been planted every single day. For five years, every single day, water planted, water planted. And it doesn't break through the ground for the first five years. But after those five years, it breaks through the ground and will grow 90 feet in five weeks. I mean, talk about just waiting, 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 five weeks. Called to be patient to trust God in the waiting as he refines our faith. David isn't being whimsical. He's not being optimistic or uninformed. He is co confident that he has cultivated an inner garden that bears the fruit of peace in all these circumstances. He says, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, in our arena of life here and now. We may not see everything God promised. Go read Hebrews 11. He was like, we're not going to see everything come. We want to see like the whole arc. God did this in my life and now we saw how it ended. We very well will not see how that goes. But we will see his goodness. If we have eyes to see his goodness. Do we even know what the goodness of the Lord is? Would we know it if we saw it? Or are we so influenced by the speed and the promises of our culture and have we neglected to cultivate our inner garden? that we wouldn't know God's goodness if we saw it. Or we assume that God's goodness is, is the situation that we so desire, the situation that we so want. That God's goodness doesn't always look how we think it looks. Uh, some, of you, some of you may know, some of you may not know, we, we experienced a loss in our church over the last couple of weeks and we just had a funeral for a, a gentleman who was an amazing guy. And he left behind five kids and a wife. And, and we had the funeral this week. And I don't think she'd mind me saying that. As I, I was able to be a part of the service. We got to lead a song at the end of the service that was a song that pointed to the goodness of God in the midst of just the situation they were walking through. And, and I'm, I'm pretty positive you could ask if they wanted this to all turn out different. And I think you get your answer. But I think if you ask this woman godly woman in our church. If you ask, do you, have you seen the goodness of God? I watched her as we were singing the song about God's goodness with her hand in the air. Because I think in the midst of the situation that this family had walked through, she had cultivated her inner garden and trusted the goodness of God. And I think if you asked her, she would see it. She would see it in the legacy of her husband. She would see it in the closeness of the church family that surrounded her. She would see it in the presence of Jesus who's walked with her every day through this situation, will continue to walk with her every day for the rest of her life. She is experiencing the goodness of God in a way that many of us might not ever experience because we were hoping God's goodness was just a nice situation. That the goodness of God in ideal circumstances are not the same thing. But the goodness of God is living with Jesus, experiencing his presence in our life, living in such a way that he bears fruit in our life, that the garden has been tilled, that the sun and the rain comes and grows these things in our life, that we see his goodness. But sometimes we gotta wait for it. Sometimes we gotta be patient. It's not gonna happen tomorrow. But like my friend's dad who's a farmer, God works at a different pace than us. Are we willing to trust him and trust his goodness in all things? Jesus, we're thankful for your grace.
We're thankful for your presence. We're thankful that you are good. Jesus, we need your help in these things. Jesus, my prayer is that we would not close out this video and say, okay, I got to do some more things so I can have a better life. Jesus, that's not it. But we want to take stock of what it is we are cultivating in our lives and what fruit is being produced in our lives because, Jesus, we don't want to miss you and all the noise and all the speed and all the things that cause Jesus. We don't want to miss the beautiful relationship with you. Jesus, help us to identify the ways in which we are neglecting our garden. Help us, Jesus, connect ourselves to the true vine that we might experience life and life abundantly in you. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.